The role of a business leader is always to future-proof their company. But what do you do in a year as unpredictable as 2020, and who do you turn to for advice on what the future is going to look like? A risk analyst or perhaps an economist? But you might not think to ask a structural engineer. Over at engineering megafirm Arup, there are over 16,000 employees happy to help. While still preoccupied with getting projects physically off the ground from Sydney to Barcelona, this cooperative of creative, solution-driven minds are also consulting on the future of our built environment. From his home in northwest London, on this week's episode of The Chiefs, we're joined by Arup Fellow and Deputy Chair Tristram Carfrey. With over 25 years at the ubiquitous organization, Carfrey speaks passionately about Arup's inclusive management practices and his involvement in the construction of Gaudi's Sagrada Familia. As this year's events and their inevitable aftershocks bring questions of sustainability, public space, and global interconnectedness into sharper focus, where does Arup and its international network of structures really stand? I'm Tyler Brule, and this is The Chiefs on Monocle 24. Tristan, thank you very, very much for joining us. I guess probably the place to start and probably what a lot of our listeners are feeling, and certainly a lot of them have been living with over this past half year plus, are, of course, delays in supply chain, delays in construction. If we, of course, look at Arup and all of the projects that you are working on around the world, what have the past six months looked like? We have a mixed bag to report, I guess, Tyler. Most of our projects are actually on schedule. Some things obviously are not. For example, a lot of aviation projects have been delayed because who knows what's happening to aviation at the moment. And a lot of private sector developments have also been delayed because actually getting a price, getting a builder, getting things onto site at the moment is quite difficult as well. But overall, most things are moving forward pretty well. And what do you put that down to? Because the fact that actually, when you're talking about what might be a five or six year big transport infrastructure project, all of the material was, was already in the pipeline already. These are such long burn projects, given the scale of general engagement that you have, of course, on projects, that that was a blip. I guess it would be another conversation, maybe if we were talking in a year, or if we're then into a third or fourth lockdown in the cycle of this pandemic. Uh, Yes. Well, you sort of already answered the question to some extent, but there's a bit more to it than that. And if I digress slightly and take us, you know, back to Arup and who we are and what we do to get the context. We started as a firm of structural engineers 75 years ago with the idea of really just being very good at what we did. Out of that came the idea that if you want to be really good, then you've got to get good people and you have to retain them. And I guess from that came the idea that If you give people a lot of autonomy, let them choose what to do, let them pursue their own dreams and ambitions, then they stay. We've developed just sort of organically from that position. We're now a cooperative, we own ourselves, and people do stay. In fact, if you join our app, there's a 25% chance you'll still be here 10 years later. But the point of all of that is that we change to meet the market. So as larger projects maybe get delayed, as I just said, then we move more into advisory and strategy work and policy work. And in this time of great unknown, everybody wants this speculating about, so what's happening? What do we do? How do we, how do we meet the future? And of course, we can help with that too. That's interesting. When you talk about, of course, your background, you're not, uh, I mean, yes, there might be think tank components to it, but there are many other people who, 
you know, if, if I'm uh, a head of state uh, or if I'm a big property developer that I might instinctively go to for not just a view on, on urbanism, but many other things. What process do you take? How broad is the client base, particularly in these times when someone is trying to figure out, do we need to be looking at a third terminal? Should we be adding an extra two lanes to our bridge? Uh, should we be adding another two towers to our mixed-use development? What approach do you take? But also, yeah, I guess how broad is that base that's coming to have a conversation with you? So for us, the, um, the, the trick to that, I think, Tyler, is simply getting as diverse a bunch of people as possible together to think about, you know, what are the issues that our clients are facing or even that the world are facing and how best can we go about resolving them? So we, we currently have about 90 different disciplines of engineers, architects, planners, ecologists, economists, um, strategists, pure consultants, you know, of, of all different types. And one of the most interesting things about the pandemic is actually that big meetings, review meetings and meetings where we're trying to get ideas together are working, if anything, better in our sort of working from home mode than they were in the f- when we used to come together physically in meeting rooms. The, the, the modern systems, you know, these virtual meetings allow people to converse as we are, but also to chat using text or to draw on whiteboards. And different people flourish in different environments. And somehow the whole process has become less hierarchical. More people are contributing in more ways. And therefore, we're actually getting better ideas and better integration of those ideas than we ever did before. I feel today, actually, people are sort of very divided. Also, when it comes to the home office, so yes, yeah, some think it's great. Some can't, you know, wait to jump on the tram to get back to the office. And that, you know, we're talking in a moment of certainly from a European context where we've seen you know, most or at least the two lead economies you know, going down a path which comes pretty close to, to what we were living through with through March and April. So there is this tension and certainly this sort of feeling where home office is front and center again, as is Zoom fatigue or Zoom excitement. But what has worked for you? Is there an Arab view as to how you deal with either a kickoff session with a client, a pitch moment? And of course, you don't want to give away too many state secrets. But, but what is functioning best, do you think? As you've already observed, I think our people are suffering in different ways or benefiting in different ways from working from home. So, you know, it depends a lot on their physical arrangements. You know, what, how easy is it to work from home? Do they have the right you know, place, space, equipment? There's um, a sort of domestic side of it. You know, what, are, what relationships have they got? What have they got in the way of dependence? You know, what other um, commitments do they have? And then lastly, the sort of the psychological one. Some people seem to really enjoy it and some people find it really difficult from a, a well-being loneliness you know perspective so and then all of every one of us I think then oscillates you know we're not we're not fixed we have up days and down days but I would say generally as you said sort of zoom fatigue or I think of it as we're using up our social capital slowly but surely our social credit if you like you know from when we started this back in March and it is declining over time so we're trying lots of other techniques as well, not just the straight virtual meetings as like the one we're having now, but you know, we found a, a place where you can actually enter a virtual space wearing a pair of headphones and hear everybody around you. And so you can put 50 people into that space and have you know, private conversations move from between groups, just as you would in the physical world. And it's trying to recreate the um, spontaneity, you know, the, the, the casual conversation, the unexpected, 
because everything at the moment is also very choreographed. It's all very planned and organized and getting over that. But going back to an actual question, you know, do we have any special tips, you know, for pitches and, and winning work? I think there's only one tip, which is just to relax and be yourself. Before we get uh, to maybe what you're seeing and the discussions that you're having with clients and maybe certainly what the if there is an Arab sort of house view, before that, there's so much geography when, of course, you look at your roll call of not just a where you're involved with projects, but of course, where you maintain and where you have partners around the world on a good day in non-pandemic times. And, and I, I just, I want to pick up on this notion of social capital. When you think about internal social capital, how do you keep that going? How do you make sure that you're, you're able to foster that? For us, it is this giving people as much freedom and autonomy to do what they want to do. You know, and what then happens is people stay with us because they enjoy the other people that they're working with. And out of that, you get a large degree of engagement, you know, with other people, with the organization and with our purpose of trying to make the world a better place, you know, to improve the built environment, to be socially useful, as our founder Ovarak called it. And so all those things are, are sort of the credit I was talking about. So when we started, you know, into working from home mode, the whole issue was how do we make this work? Not oh my goodness, this is really difficult. I'm just going to go and curl up in a, you know, in a ball somewhere or just detach myself from my working environment. It was all about how can we make this work? How do we engage with other people? What tools are available? You know, we had Microsoft Teams working from our houses within a week, et cetera, et cetera. So it's about that, you know, how do you form a, an organization which is also a community and is also a place where people want to be because you're trying to do the right thing. Which sounds great. And, uh, and, and I'm sure some people are probably sitting back and hearing, it's wonderful that, that you want to make a, a better place. And, and, and maybe uh, you have someone who's at a Luxembourg bank who's thinking, we want to do that in our terms as well. But maybe what's different than the Luxembourg bank, where you're talking about creativity, and I'm shorthanding it there, but you're talking about all of the engineering and, and of course, all of the thinking that goes into that to build amazing structures. And of course, hopefully most of the time, you know, they are improving the built environment and, and they're making for, for better cities and better regional interconnectivity, all, all, of, all of these things. But I'm just interested as someone who's also in a creative business. It's great giving people freedom, but as a client, and I have to sort of sign off on this, you know, how do I know that what the team is doing in Australia is similar to maybe the experience that I had with the team in San Francisco last time, if you see what I'm getting at? I do indeed see what you're getting at, and, and it won't be quite true. There's a sort of an ideal as to what Arup does and what our service provision might be, but there's also different expectations in different parts of the world where all our cultures are different. And the Arab in a location is somewhere in between those two, if I can put it like that. But we are, we operate as one collective. We are one single global profit center. We have people, about 5% of us at any one time, working in different locations as a deliberate strategy to mix it up, to try and get an idea of what Arab is and what our service is and what clients and and the world can genuinely expect us to provide, if I can put it like that. So I've worked in three different places. I've worked in the UK, in Tokyo, and for 20 years in Australia. And I'm typical, if you like, of our leaders. So we get, try and get that broader view and try and get that broader concept of what we're trying to deliver. I mean, our, our most famous project, perhaps, was the Sydney Opera House, 
which sort of started this whole idea of global working. Let's look at the world geopolitically right now. And, and you start in Australia. So if I look at maybe one of the challenges at the moment, it seems that there's been this obsession in an Asia-Pacific context, which really hasn't been about, people have been worried about the economy, but it seems that almost all Asian leaders or APAC leaders have been completely focused on zero numbers, this obsession with only 10 cases today or 20 cases today. And it's not just been, of course, in the way that maybe Thailand as an economy uh, has focused on it. I mean, in many ways, if we go down towards the Sydney Opera House, whether we're in Sydney or Canberra or over in Wellington, again, this idea of, of quite heavy-handed lockdowns and, 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 and much celebration about it, but also these places are generally cut off as well. So I'm wondering, is there an Arab view as to how we're going to become interconnected. Because as you said, you know, we, when the Opera House went up, it was also about bringing interesting teams and, and of course, a variety of, of experiences to the fore. Long question, but I'm wondering, how are we going to get things rolling again? And do clients come to you with that question? Clients do come to us, not quite with that question, because we're, we're not always called upon to, to answer geopolitical questions at quite that scale. But they do come to us in all, all the different locations saying, what's going to happen next? How do we deal with the future? What is likely to occur? We have lots of ways of, of modeling that, of finding out. We've got this brilliant system called Mass Motion, for example, that we actually borrowed from the film industry. So if you remember um, Lord of the Rings, the way in which they made the orcs you know, look like an army of different individual orcs while collectively acting together, is they invented a bit of software where each orc is its own agent and responds to the environment around it. And so you get a collective action with individual things happening within it. Well, we borrowed that piece of software, developed it and use it originally for um, modeling the way people deal with emergencies, escape in particular, in fires, for example. But now we've taken it forward to modeling you know, how people behave normally and importantly, how people behave you know, in a social distance environment, for example, how many people can you have safely in your office building? How do you, you know, manage the, the reception area, the lifts, tea rooms, etc, etc. But going back to your point, this morning, I was in a, a good conversation with our colleagues in East Asia, and they are almost business as usual. They're going to the office, they're eating out, they're going to bars. It's very hard to say who's doing the right thing and who's doing the wrong thing. The only thing I'd say lastly is that actually we have got more international, you know, between nations working in Arab presently than we had last year at this time. In other words, we have more people working on projects in Australia or Australians working on projects in Canada or Europeans in Italy working on projects in China because actually the virtual world again sort of diminishes the importance of where you are physically. You touched on, of course, the, the international nature, and certainly, obviously, that you know all markets are different, and clients are going to be looking for different things, and and of course, all of your your outposts behave a little bit differently. Do you think that we're going to emerge from this with, let's call them scars, or let's call them some long term habits? Because again, if I if I rewind six months ago, even when we were at the start of the series, we had people talking about this concept is completely off the table, that you know, people are always going to be socially distanced. We had people telling us that people wouldn't be shaking hands, all kinds of things. That changed you know, by June, July. We did see people rushing back together. Maybe that's why we're in the situation we're in. Are our memories short, do you think? And I guess this comes back to the idea, if, if I'm come to you now and I'm thinking, I'm going to be brave, I'm going to I want to do a development out by Heathrow because Heathrow is going to bounce back. Are you 
of a view in the UK that actually, okay, social distancing is going to be important. It's with us for the next decade, and therefore we need to build that into a building? Or is it more about, no, we just need to make sure that the building is flexible? Again, is there a house view market by market as to how behaviors will be in a UK context versus a US versus a German one? What we're seeing, I think, is an acceleration of the future, by which I mean the pandemic causes things to change in a way that perhaps they would have changed anyway, but it happens more quickly combined with a complete temporary disruption. I don't think where any of us are in a position to know whether in a year's time, you know, it, it's all over or whether in a year's time, you know, we're still having to apply social distancing and a degree of concern about what we might catch from other people. So th- there are so many unknowns in that question, but the only thing I'm sure about is this idea that the future comes here more rapidly. So two years ago, for example, Arab, We were um, experimenting with a totally flexible working contract where all our people could work from wherever and whenever they wanted, provided they delivered what it was that they were meant to be delivering, did what they were meant to be doing. You know, where they did it and when they did it and how they did it was a matter of personal preference. And here we are, you know, two years later, and that's sort of being forced upon us. But to me, it was the future anyway and still remains the future. It's just a matter of when. And that's Mm. a small example of it. But it's still that idea that everything we're doing is going the right direction. We're going to introduce more greenery into cities because we need to deal with biodiversity. We need to get over this idea of degrading the planet and get to the point where we're actually improving the planet, where we're bringing nature back to live with us and live with what we build. All these things are things which are just being accelerated, I think, by what's happening to us at the moment. When we look at the built environment, Tristram, do you think that there are a lot of corrections or maybe things that, you know, that any number of people in your firm have been busy fighting for or at least advocating for? And, and, you know, and one, I guess, which is you know, the follow on or if we look up from the wonderful green landscapes uh, that define the cities that we really love, you know, we look up at balconies. So I'm standing in Zurich. I can see beyond the studio right here that you know, pretty much every apartment around this building has a balcony. Some have been there since the, the turn of the last century, but some were retrofitted and, and went up maybe as recently as, as six months ago. There's definitely a policy in this city that balcony good, and if it's south-facing, even better. I can think of a conversation, though, that I, I had with a council in the UK quite recently, pre-pandemic, where they said balcony bad because people can go out on them and they might tip a glass of wine over and worse still, people can sit on a balcony after 10 o'clock and make noise. So we don't like balconies in this council. Do you think there's now a rethink after lockdowns, all of these things, many things that I'm sure, of course, and certainly not just engineering firms, architects, sociologists, all kinds of people, suddenly these things are off the table. It's not going to be a problem to have a conversation with a developer or a council anymore. Yes, people need to have a balcony and other elements as well, which were occasionally hard to push through. Absolutely, Tyler. Yes, I think things are resetting in that way. But again, I would have said, you know, my personal view is balcony was always good. And so again, all we're doing is is the pandemic is helping us see more clearly, you know, the difference between between good and bad. There are some bigger things, though, if you like, you know, in the world, the construction is a, a hugely damaging occupation or activity, you know, buildings themselves represent about 40% of our carbon emissions. And of that 40%, a quarter or 10% of the whole is from construction itself. The operational part of buildings can, in theory, be addressed by decarbonizing electricity and making them more electric. But the, the construction of buildings is a fairly intractable problem. But it's not totally intractable. We can reduce the amount of um, material we use. 
by using uh, modern digital techniques, better an analysis, better um, construction techniques, manufacturing things and assembling them on site. And then we can change the materials themselves to biological ones where we're actually embedding carbon rather than emitting carbon. And we can get to you know, the idea of a, a zero carbon construction, genuinely zero carbon construction. And all these things are sitting right in front of us now. And they have been actually possible probably for the last 20 years, but we haven't had the impetus or maybe the imagination to want to do it. And again, I would suggest that the pandemic is causing us to really reevaluate what we're doing and why we're doing it. And in my view, for the better, you know, I think we're going to see a huge jump in the use of the circular economy, the reuse of buildings, making buildings, as you mentioned earlier, that are adaptable, that will continue to have long lives rather than ones which are very purpose built and maybe quite shallow, if I can put it that conceptually shallow. You know, so all of these things, I think, are, are huge um, opportunities that have been created this year. While, so while this year has been a, an, an immense struggle, and maybe we'll continue to struggle for another six months or so, depending on the vaccine situation, there's also this brilliant opportunity to really deal with the issues that have been in front of us for the last 75 years. Just before we go, Tristan, I, I want to go to a great structure that is being built. And I want to just maybe revisit a bit of a theme that has popped up from time to time across this series. It's not tied to the pandemic. It's tied to talent. So clearly, it's quite exciting to be an engineer or, or a sociologist uh, or a landscape architect who, who might be on your books and you, you get to work in a great environment, etc. When I go around the world and everyone wants to talk about automation, et cetera, and I can be in Tokyo looking at new structures going up for the Olympics, I can be on the streets of Geneva, these buildings still have to go up. And I don't see a lot of robots. Or there's maybe a lot of precast pieces, et cetera, but there is a lot of grunt work that still goes into it. Is there a crisis or certainly a problem in certain corners of, of the world right now? Because you can go and come up with the most amazing concepts to get across a body of water, but it still has to, to get built. And so I'm wondering, are we going to see shifts in, in labor movements? Do we come to a place where a big ship arrives from somewhere in Asia, potentially, or somewhere where there are, of course, lower wages, and it's there for a month or, or a year until it's completed, and then it goes somewhere else? I'm just wondering, these jobs aren't so attractive anymore, if they ever were. And what does that mean for a firm like yours? And is that part of the thinking that you have to, of course, consider when you look at um, projects all over the world? So rather than answer that question in a, in a generality, Tyler, I can just tell you, I'll tell you about the project I've got the most pleasure out of over the last five years, which is helping to complete um, the Sagrada Familia Church, Gaudi's amazing church in Barcelona. So they decided um, five years ago, the owners, who are also the builders, that they wanted to finish it quite quickly, that they wanted to finish in 2026. And so to do so, we had to speed up construction by a factor of 10. So given a, a problem, if I can put it like that, you know, a, a, a target, an objective, you know, we came up with the idea of making panels of stone offsite, so multiple stone blocks, all cut by computer, assembled in a jig, you know, using modern uh, manufacturing methods, hand finished by craftsmen, you know, just as they would have been doing a thousand years ago to get the right texture and feel and quality. And then site assembled as five tons or five meter panels. You know, we can put in one, one row of 14 panels in a day. So we, we end up with construction that's 10 times faster, 
that uses only 25% of the material. The construction site itself becomes a piece of theater, something that people enjoy watching. It's no longer a blight on its neighborhood. It's actually an attraction. And you get this amazing emotional connection from the final product because it's made from natural materials and the love that's gone into the, the craftsmanship and the employment of people hasn't changed. But what you've done is you have changed the, the methods by which you're building out of sight on something which is still looking like something that was made a thousand years ago. So it's, it's quite complicated to unpick your question and be general about it because you can actually do it all. Yes, I, I agree. I, I don't want to spend too much time on it because we could all do a whole topic about labor and building sites. And I think without trying to be sort of overly political about it, but I guess you're also working within the confines of the European Union and you're also working within a region, within a nation as well, which has its own peculiarities. And maybe it's also, it's a very special project, you could argue as well. But let's maybe just ask it a simple question. Is there a problem confronting us, we're standing in Europe, when it comes to creating buildings to uh, finishing runways, whatever it is, is there enough talent uh, there? Because you know, I always get press releases about shortage of painters, shortage of joiners here and there from all, all parts of Europe. You know, we hear about talent deficits all over the place, but I wonder if the actual business of getting things out of the foundation, up in the air, if that is a challenge. Yes. I mean, I, I've got to agree. There is a, there's always going to be a potential shortage. You know, the engineering community will tell you there's a shortage of engineers as well. Interestingly, we still don't get paid very much, so I'm not sure that it's ever quite true. But there's always this potential shortage of people. But I also see that people are really quite adaptable and they take to the new things that we need to do, you know, as well as you know, giving up the old. But there is a big global challenge that we are moving from 7 billion people on the planet towards 10 billion people on the planet. And if the urbanisation continues in a similar sort of pattern as it did before the pandemic, we need to build more city you know, in the next 40 years than currently exists, or a similar amount at least, to double the amount of city in the world. You know, and that, that is a huge undertaking. And the only way we are going to do that is by using modern methods and, and techniques and by some places you know, missing out whole steps of construction evolution and moving to, to the future faster perhaps than than the um, more developed world might do, a bit like the way some parts of the world missed out on telephony, you know, as in using copper lines and went straight to mobile telephony. But I see this all again, you know, it, it's opportunity to me and it's, and it's a fantastic problem to have and to need to solve. Just, from, just before we go, looking out, and I'm saying really out, not asking about this coming January, but three, five years, when you think about projects you can talk about that are on the horizon where maybe the riveting is already occurring, what's exciting you? Three things that come to mind uh, that and maybe our, our listeners would maybe not want to hear about first, but at least maybe most of them will hear about them here first. Okay. The, the thing that would really excite me most is if we could radically change typical construction. Uh, is, is there a way to build ordinary-ish buildings in cities which is carbon neutral, that is a, a delight to witness, to have around you in your neighbourhood, that will make your life better, you know, that will give you more open space, more access to daylight, to natural light, to greenness, to flexibility as to how to, you wish to work and how you wish to travel, and it's all done without making the planet a worse place. So to me, that, that is this fantastic opportunity. And I just sense, I can't quite put my finger on it, Tyler, but I sense that it is right here, right now, that we're going to crack that. 
My thanks to Tristram Carfrey for joining us for this week's episode of The Chiefs. And if you'd like to delve into our star-studded back catalogue of chief design officers, CEOs, city mayors, and more, head to monocle.com forward slash radio. The Chiefs is produced and researched by Paige Reynolds and edited by Sean Hickey. I'm Tyler Brule. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>